Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Brian Rathbun, Professor of International Relations at the University of Southern California. Brian, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. You've written that realpolitik, which is essentially refers to a rational pursuit of national interests in conditions of largely material structural constraints, is at the heart of realist theory, and that many realists assume that state leaders approach international politics with a basically rational and pragmatic calculation. But you argue instead that realpolitik is actually pretty rare. Uh, rather than being commonplace, it's actually the exception. You write that, quote, only those who think rationally will act like realists. Explain your basic argument here. Well, so the, the basic argument is informed by a psychological approach to international relations, which itself is inspired by findings largely in cognitive psychology that through the years, uh, most notably through the work of Robert Jervis, but uh, even before and after that, um, have been around in the field, in my field of international relations, right? Um, but I felt that they hadn't adequately been drawn into uh, deal with this question of rationality, which is oftentimes, like you said, an assumption uh, of, uh, of uh, realist approaches, but also just all, um, I would say, the modal category or the, the modal approach to how we think about decision making uh, as academics, as people trying to make sense of the world. And the reason I think that is, is uh, because it's easy. Right. It's it's easier to assume that people are rational and then try to develop expectations of their behavior. But everything we know about psychology tells us that being rational uh, is very difficult. Right. It, it demands a lot of cognitive effort. And oftentimes the assumption uh, of realists and others who who write even in the popular press right, is that there's this big distinction between, say, the masses who are irrational and emotional, mainly because they don't know very much, right, uh, or because they're uncultured and unsophisticated, right, and what this, what the, what the grown-ups handle this. But of course, the grown-ups, right, not only are human beings like anybody else, but uh, just as importantly are under all kinds of pressure and, uh, and, and cognitive demands, right, both on their time, um, but also given the stakes that can lead them to act irrationally as well. Now, what I mean by the, the important thing, though, here is to understand what I mean by rationality, which is not so much making the right choice, because actually making the right choice, what the right choice is, is oftentimes very hard uh, to distinguish both at the time and after the fact, right? It's the process by which you go or it's the mental process and the cognitive process you go through to make your choice. And so uh, that we know in psychology by the term cognitive style. And cognitive style for me, or at least a rational cognitive style, is comprised of two main elements, which I think of as the essence of rationality. One is being as objective as you can possibly be. Now, um, any psychologist will tell us that no one is ever completely objective, and I think we know this in our in our daily lives as well. Um, but the key here is to try to be to be self conscious about one's objectivity, which I guess one could call objectivity in the first place. So, uh, so seeing the situation as it actually is, rather than and here's the key thing, rather than how we want it to be, 
right? And how we want it to be, what we call motivated bias in psychology, is a powerful, powerful force, right? It tells us all kinds of things about uh, about who we are and whether we're the good guy or whether we're the, we're the bad guy, et cetera, right? And that colors our assessment of the situation that we are in. So that's one element is the objectivity. The second element is deliberation, right? Which is to say that we very carefully go through our choice set, the options that we have. We carefully assess the cost and benefits of particular courses of action, which again is very difficult for us oftentimes because we have a tendency as human beings, for instance, to have perhaps in, um, an intuition or an instinct towards one course of action. And then we basically manipulate the, our assessment of the costs and benefits in particular directions that lead the thumb to be placed on one side of the scale rather than the other. And so um, because it's such um, a high standard of decision-making, uh, I my premise was that this is not something we should see very often. Um, it is the, the premise of decision-making in realist approaches to international relations. But here I would I would note, and I do in the article, um, a key distinction, which is that we have, uh, if one looks at the history of of international relations thought, um, the modern realists, uh, who we know by people who might be familiar to those listening to this podcast, John Mearsheimer, before that, Kenneth Waltz, maybe Barry Posen, right? These are the people who really assume rational decision making. But the older realist tradition, which is the one that I draw from the most, is kind of conflicted and more often than not tells us that we should be rational rather than that we are rational, right? So Morgenthau, for instance, and others spend a lot of time saying, please act more rationally. If we think about uh, this very famous book that Morgenthau wrote in the late 1940s, uh, and updated subsequently through generations, what, what this largely was, what a huge part of that book was, Politics Among Nations, was advice to U.S. decision makers to stop making the Cold War an ideological struggle of good versus bad because he thought that was irrational, lent itself to crusades, and was ultimately, therefore, bad policy. Um, and so it's that older realist tradition that I draw on, actually, mostly to make the point that Realists know this, right? Realists know that rationality is hard and oftentimes an exception. And so um, the, the purpose of this piece, which, which also became the basis of a, of a book a little bit later, was to recover that, that insight and also to join it with psychological approaches that buttressed it. Because in the old days, you could basically just say something was true ipso facto as fact Right. Um, whereas I wanted to show that there was a, a strong empirical scientific foundation for many of the intuitions that someone like Morgenthau had. What about the argument that you sometimes hear from realists that states are highly incentivized to perceive the world rationally because failure to do so in a dangerous anarchic environment could have very unpleasant results? So sure, that incentives exists. The question is whether or not it dictates an obvious response, right? And here is where the psychological approach uh, starts from a fundamentally different premise of the nature of the world. And the nature of the world, if we think about it through a psychological lens, 
is highly, highly complicated. That is to say, sure, I want to be safe. What does that even mean? How do I, uh, I uh, we can start from a very easy premise of security, right, as the basic foundational vital interest. And here, most uh, people who approach international relations through the lens of psychology wouldn't disagree with that at all. They would say, okay, what now, right? What does it mean? So, uh, what does it mean to to uh, to provide security from, say, a rising Chinese threat? Well, you can deal with we can deal with security threats in a million different ways, right? Um, and and it might even um, in, involve negotiation and uh, in conciliation around issues of common interest, right? So um, the. I think the fundamental flaw of a lot of these realist approaches is not the fact that the world or is not is, is, is not that they're they're making an error about the nature of the world and that it can be fundamentally dangerous, but that that somehow there's some easy answer to that problematique, which there isn't. Right. And oftentimes, if we over assume that there is, we can oftentimes make ourselves less secure than we otherwise would be. Right. Um, and, uh, and I, yeah, and this, so that is, I would say the, the fundamental insight of, uh, someone who looks at the lens psychologically is to say that the world is a lot more complicated than we think, even if we accept the realist premise of the world being a, a dangerous anarchic place. So let's dig into that, um, research in cognitive psychology. What kind of insights do we get from that research about how, how, humans uh, synthesize information and make decisions? So uh, a key thing is that uh, we are oftentimes highly subjective and, um, and biased in our interpretations of what's going on in front of us. So uh, and we oftentimes don't respond to the information that is available to us in a way that we might think if we were fully rational. Uh, so, for instance, um, I can I can uh, I did a, a a different paper, which uh, which I can talk about, which is uh, which is a, a project that would derive from this general look at rationality. And what I wanted to know here, this was actually just a mass public survey, but the the advantage of a mass public survey is that we can actually control the information that the mass public receives, right? through an experimental manipulation uh, in the survey, meaning basically we just randomize you into one condition. We can think of it as the placebo and the medicine, right? And if we see that one group responds fundamentally differently to an informational manipulation, we can say that that information does the work. And basically what I wanted to do is to figure out whether or not um, a costly, what we would call a costly signal, a signal that someone really wanted better relations with the United States um, that couldn't be really misinterpreted, that was an actual genuine showing of uh, conciliatory intent would be perceived as such by, in this case, ordinary members of the ma uh, of the American public, um, meaning we wanted to see something that wasn't just cheap talk. So in this, uh, it was, of course, this is an entirely invented scenario, but we asked all these Americans, imagine it, it was at the time that the joint comprehensive plan of action was, take, uh, was being negotiated by Obama, right? This all bef uh, before Trump pulled uh, the United States out of that. And basically in different groups, we, we manipulated the strength of the cooperative signal being sent by Iran. Imagine Iran would do this. 
And what we wanted to know is whether, um, based on the information uh, that they received about Iran, would they rationally adjust their expectations about whether or not Iran was trustworthy? And here I mean rational given this fake information. I'm not saying that they had the, quote, wrong or right approach to Iran. Um, But basically what we found is that some people do, but people who had a, an, an already pre-existing disposition towards wanting to cooperate, which we had captured already in questions uh, in, in a series of, uh, uh, of questions about their general approach and thinking about international relations. What that means, and, and that, but that people who viewed the world as, as fundamentally uncooperative in nature, right, were not receptive to any new information about Iran, meaning Iran could agree to, dis, uh, to um, dismantle all its centrifuges, right, and allow inspectors in to all of their military sites, just carte blanche all throughout the country, and they didn't adjust their expectations of whether Iran was trustworthy. Um, we also, uh, in this paper, a part that wasn't published, we also looked for evidence of this process in statements of U.S. senators. And we found evidence of the same kind of selective information gathering. You see what you want to see, right? And so that, I think, is the key thing here, is that so much of international relations is about judging the intentions of of adversaries, friends sometimes, but most importantly, to the extent we're talking about security, adversaries. And oftentimes we don't have information, but that doesn't mean we don't fill in, in more information in our heads than, than we actually have, nor does it mean that we always take into account new credible information that passes before our eyes, that we oftentimes become committed to a particular understanding of what the other is like. And, and work oftentimes unconsciously, right, to reconvince ourselves of that over and over and over. Yeah, the famous uh, classical realist Hans Morgenthau argued that one of the main impediments to good diplomacy is this crusading spirit. Um, and I think, you know, in U.S. politics, and I, I know it's true elsewhere too, oftentimes a suggestion that we try to see the world through the eyes of our adversaries is liable to be shot down as some kind of appeasement. Instead, they'll argue that we need to threaten the adversary or coerce them until they comply. Is that approach, uh, does that more reliably maximize the utility of diplomacy? I think so, personally, right? And here again, we see the, uh, in, the implicit psychology of, of Morgenthau, right? Uh, that what Morgenthau is asking us to do was also what classical realists have been telling us to do for 500 to 1,000 to probably 2,000 years. Um, and, and the problem, though, I think, is that seeing the world through the eyes of our adversaries or those who we don't trust, um, maybe even our enemies, um, is associated with a kind of empathy with them, which is not what Morgenthau is talking about at all, Right. Um, we have just as easily, uh, or we could we could also refer to the aphorism "Know your enemy," right? And this is something I think that we don't actually do. We don't oftentimes know our enemy. We have these cartoonish caricatures of our enemy, right? That, but to be a a, a true pragmatic, strategic um, um, diplomatist, right, uh, requires us to really understand 
what the other side is like. And oftentimes that requires understanding that they have vital interests just as we have vital interests. Now, the problem is that sometimes that sounds like that we are being forgiving of actions that are threatening to the United States. And therefore, um, any kind of uh, of call to understand the other side is taken as sign as a sign of weakness and appeasement. But it doesn't have to be at all. Right. It just is. It just is. Let's know as much as we can about the other side to make the best possible choices. To understand the other side is not necessarily to forgive it for actions that we think are unacceptable. We just have to be careful that we are not over-assuming what we know about the other side. So in other words, objective rationality and prudent deliberation, sort of basic requirements of realpolitik, that's actually a demanding psychological standard uh, that most folks making decisions about foreign policy, you know, they, they bring a whole set of subjective assumptions and misleading heuristics and even emotion to their decision making. So let's talk about different diplomatic styles. In your book, Diplomacy's Value, you identify a number of these dif- diplomatic styles from coercive bargaining to pragmatic statecraft. And you describe how individual dispositions can go one way or the other. So value claiming and value creating. Can you kind of map out these different approaches to diplomacy? Sure. So I identify three, and I'm not saying this is an exhaustive uh, of typology, and nor is it possible to take any specific historical or contemporary political figure and put them in a box once and for all, right? But oftentimes what we're doing uh, as academics is is taking the time that we have by virtue of the fact that we don't actually work in politics and policy, right, to step back and try to get the larger lay of the land. So, um, but I identify three, and these, and what again, what we, what I saw was when I started to to think about this somewhat systematically, and and use again psychological literature, which um, which I always find a fecund place for for inspiration. But also, uh, when I when I started to do that, I started to see again parallels between what psychologists were talking about, and also what implicitly we oftentimes see in uh, international relations scholarship. Um, when it bothered to talk about diplomacy. So a big part of the book on diplomacy is that, why don't we know more about diplomacy? Um, and so I, I, uh, my conclusion was that, or, or the first step of the, I should say, of the book was to lay out this, this map, this, uh, this tableau of different diplomatic styles. Uh, so the most obvious, uh, or one of the most obvious, particularly for international relations, diplomatic styles is what was what, um, in this book I call coercive bargaining, in psychological research is called value claiming. And the way that I explain this to people, say my undergrads, right, is everyone has experience with this. This is this is the type of bargaining that we do at the used car lot, right? Um, or actually the new car lot, right? We go in, right, and we the the idea here is that we're going to try to extract from others as many concessions as we can, and they're gonna do the same thing to us, right? So what do we do if we're smart at the used car lot? We understand that the used car salesman wants to get 
as much money as possible. We want to pay as little money as possible, right, for this used car. And what do we do? Well, we come in and we we establish these benchmarks that we that we say we won't go past, right? I won't pay more than four thousand dollars. And the and the and the used car salesman says I won't come. I, there's no way I can accept anything less than five thousand, right? Um, then my, what we might do, or what might we do? We might threaten to walk away. That's the the most power that we have in 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 the used carsman situation, right? Um, but we do this in international relations too. We say we say we're going to walk out of this room if you don't make concessions to us. It's all about extraction, right? It's premised on the idea that nobody is telling the truth. Therefore, almost everything that we say is uh, is dissembling and um, misrepresentative. Right, and slowly we um, we might inch towards an agreement, but oftentimes we don't, right? Because we've staked out these positions, uh, and we make no. And the whole thing is premised on the idea that the other side is going to take any concession that we make and exploit it. So therefore, there's an incentive on both sides never to anything. Now, that is um, that it can be compared to what we sometimes call value creating. And what I did in the book is said, I think this is a liberal style. And here I mean classically liberal, like in English Whiggish sense, right? And I call this reason dialogue. And here the idea is that a negotiation is not um, is not like we have at the flea market, but it's more a process of reason dialogue in which we're trying to solve a puzzle of how to make all the parties to the to the negotiation happy. So what do we do here, right? We make concessions. We try to figure out what the other side's main interests are and what are more peripheral to them, right? And maybe we can make a package deal in which we get a concession on what matters to us most and the other side gets a concession from us on what matters to it most, right? Here, uh, now this is marked by, um, uh, by much less posturing, right? Threats, right? Um, a lot less of, say, um, denigrating offers made to the other side, right? In reason dialogue, we're constantly affirming the other of saying, thank you for making that concession. We will take that into account, right? What can we do for you? Um, and then the last is pragmatic statecraft. And here's what we were, we were already alluding to when we were talking about realpolitik, because I think the essence of realist diplomacy is, is pragmatic statecraft. And pragmatic statecraft is basically being pragmatic, which is adjusting your negotiating style to the particular situation you're in. But there's also, but there's actually a lot of overlap between reason dialogue and pragmatic state laugh. The pragmatic state craft practitioner wants to basically secure the most important things to his or her country, right? And basically thinks the rest of stuff is just gravy. It doesn't really matter very much. And that what sh- one shouldn't do, which is what the coercive bargainer does, which is to, ma- is to make concessions on absolutely nothing for, for fear of appearing weak, right? So Morgan Thau and others before him would tell us, figure out what's most important, secure that, then make concessions on other things that don't matter, right? So that you can avoid a deteriorating spiral of hostile relations with, um, with another country that ultimately might undermine your security. So you also write in that book that elasticity is the supreme advantage. Um, and the way I look at U.S. foreign policy, it's, I think it's ironic in a number of ways. On the one hand, if you look at our situation, just the basic security situation that we're in, 
seems like it should allow for a lot of pragmatic diplomacy. We have, we have uh, our basic security is is sort of basically secured, um, you know. But we're very overcommitted. We have many, many, uh, you know, sixty plus treaty allies to to whom we're treaty bound to come to their defense, and we have other non-treaty allies. And, and there's a kind of rigidity that ends up surrounding those partnerships and alliances, and I think it crowds out some of the room for the flexibility that's needed to do real and constructive diplomacy. Uh, and this kind of maybe global policeman or world cop role, I think, tends to lessen our tendency to uh, um, engage in pragmatic diplomacy and offer concessions and, and have that flexibility. Does this, do you think, do you agree? Does that kind of overly committed uh, approach to the world in our, in our security commitments hamper the kind of flexibility that we need? So certainly, right, the more commitments that you have, to the extent that the, the world, like we were talking about before, is highly interconnected, interdependent, and complicated, right? That the more commitments that you have, um, to the extent that those impinge upon whatever, uh, say you have a bunch of multilateral commitments and you have to negotiate or you have to negotiate a certain bilateral relationship. And here I mean negotiation in the broadest sense, not necessarily symmetry, right, but just manage, right? Certainly, the, the, the more that you have to take into account all these different partners, that does, that is going to constrain you. It will prevent you from adjusting to the situation. Um, and so we do have these institutional constraints, right? But of course, we also have um, certain ideological constraints. And again, as a psychologist, I'm going to remind us that we're oftentimes not aware of those, right? So if we're, if we're thinking, for instance, of approaching the world objectively, right? Um, and yet the United States, certainly since 1945, and maybe in a different form before 1945, generally approaches um, world politics, right, with the mindset, and here we might call this the establishment mindset, right? That the more that the United States is involved in parts of the world, the better the U.S. will be, but also the better that the rest of the rest of the world will be. Right? And what is that? That there's a there's a sense of moral superiority there that can definitely get in the way of pragmatic statecraft. I would say, both because um, for me it, it lends itself to a kind of uh, moral righteousness that I I think Morgenthau would find lacking. Now, at the same time, and here I haven't figured this out, and gosh, if, if I think about this every day, I'm not sure how anybody else is going to figure it out. Um, you know, at the same time, what does that mean about, does that mean that the United States doesn't have a certain um, ethical obligation, nor, or, nor, or, or does it mean that the United States is morally equivalent to, say, someone like who Biden is negotiating with today, with, with Vladimir Putin? Is, is the United States really Russia? And I would say no, right? But I would say that, uh, but I also say that the American historical tradition, there's something about American political culture and American strategic military culture, especially since the end of the Second War, World War, right, that makes it difficult for the United States to be a practitioner of pragmatic statecraft. And here, actually, I think like a lot of those same realists I was criticizing before, when they write in policy contexts, would actually tend to agree, right? that the United States gets in its own way and that there's a reason that there haven't been that many practitioners of pragmatic statecraft in post-war American history, right? For me, I think the most obvious 
and most successful practitioner of pragmatic statecraft um, in American post-war history was George Bush the first. Right. Um, I think that um, that it's a that the negotiations uh, with uh, with the Soviet Union over the fate of Germany in uh, 1989 through 1990, right, were just textbook pragmatic statecraft. Um, but there's a reason why George Bush the first are pretty rare in American uh, in American foreign policy, and I think that it's I think a lot of it has to do with. Um, with the way that we conceive, which is to say our ideology, and ideology acts always acts as a subjective blinder on our actions. So the Biden administration, as you mentioned, is engaged in diplomacy right now with, uh, with Russia. There's ongoing talks with Iran to revive the JCPOA, the nuclear deal that the Obama administration signed. How would how would a, uh, a diplomatic posture informed by the insights of your research uh, approach U.S. foreign policy uh, right now. Like, if we began to employ some of these insights now, how how should that inform the way we go forward, and what kinds of diplomatic styles are likely to work? So, for me personally, I think that the overall conclusion of that I draw from the book is that it's always better to be talking, right? It's always better to be talking. One of the few things that that uh, the last president did that I, well, liked is a strong word, that I didn't find objection to was, was, uh, was talk to the North Koreans, right? Now, he did it in this re- almost ridiculous way of, you know, of, uh, of showing up without any preparation and just hoping that somehow that they that he by virtue of his his boundless charm um which of course he vastly overstates right would somehow convince uh the north koreans that they're not threatened or nor or convince you know this 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 leader who's um you know who's uh we could say uh we can say um at very best a mass murderer um was somehow going to was somehow going to change his mind and say oh i've had it all wrong And yet at the same time, dialogue, I think, is always important to be in contact, even if it doesn't go anywhere. And I think there's a certain element uh, or or pre-existing wisdom amongst diplomats themselves is that you don't talk unless you think you can get an agreement. I think and I think that's wrong. Right. I think you should always be in communication. I think the dumbest thing that you can ever do is to withdraw your ambassador. It's symbolic. It doesn't do anything right. Um, right, meaning it imposes no cost. It's childish, and it actually gets in the way of information gathering uh, uh, that you would want, even if you weren't really interested in, you know, in some um, long-term embrace of 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 another as a misunderstood brother. Um, so I, that's that's my first thing. Right, it's always better to be talking to someone. Right. At the same thing, time, you should also be prepared and not end up looking like an absolute idiot when you go and you have no idea what you're doing, which is what the last administration did. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think that's one of the, the takeaways in the book. But there is a second takeaway, which I think is which I think is 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 hard for us to 
it, I, or what I, it seems like it's hard for people to really come to terms with, which is sometimes you're not going to have success, that the impact of diplomacy always hinges on the diplomatic style of multiple sides, right? So you can come to the other side with all kinds of good faith and goodwill, right? But sometimes they're not going to meet you with that. And sometimes you're not going to be able to do anything that causes them um, to make concessions, to build trust, etc., um, either because there's no way they're going to trust you or because, or because they actually do have certain intentions and designs that are fundamentally incompatible with your interests, right? And so off in the book, what I, what I do, and this is based on historical cases um, largely, but you, you find that if one side pr approaches the negotiation, even in a bilateral setting, even if one side approaches it through coercive bargaining, there's not much you can do, right? Because it's our fundamental human nature, even on the part of those who want to engage in reason dialogue. If we extend uh, a certain hand of friendship and conciliation and our efforts at trust building and that hand is slapped away, we ought, we will revert ourselves, even if we want something else, to coercive bargaining. And then we get these downward spirals of acrimony, et cetera, right? So um, therefore- Can it operate in the, in the opposite direction as well? If, uh, if uh, one party is a bit um, stubborn and indefatigable and the other party is a bit more cooperative and uh, value creating, uh, can they influence the other side sometimes or not? I I think it's very very rare. I think more often the uh more oftentimes what happens is that the side that wants better relations waits the domestic situation of the other country out until you get a better partner, right? So for instance, in uh in one of the cases, I I did a, a case study of the of the. Palestinian-Israeli negotiations in the in the early 1990s, the peace process, right? And basically, what happened there is that nothing was going to happen there until Likud was out of power, right? And um, and so, so so you're looking for that precondition, just like the joint comprehensive plan of action only would have uh, was only made possible by a certain combination in both American and Iranian domestic politics, right? Now, at the same time, you don't want to, in the meantime, exacerbate and inflame. You always have to in diplomacy, and this is what I don't really write about in the book, but one could write a book about this, that dip diplomacy is not just about uh, high state officials negotiating with other high state officials, but it should also have an eye towards the domestic politics going on in this country that you want to, uh, that you need to manage your relations with. And if you want to, for instance, make an adversary less adversarial and you don't have a particular partner, you nevertheless want to understand that eventually there might be some kind of change in their domestic politics. And so don't do anything needlessly inflammatory so that when the other side does come into power, right, they are prevented either by your actions or by the their own public's perception of your actions that their their hands are completely tied that they can't deal with you at all because of the inflammatory actions that you've taken so that's what that's what i would say and that's again it's part of being a practitioner either of reasoned dialogue or pragmatic statecraft is having that long-term view um that 
that you manage things as long as you can until you get a window of opportunity. Yeah, just in general, this seems very difficult for practitioners because, as you said, I think we are dealing with, uh, you know, the obstacles here are are largely ideological and psychological. I think about the irony sometimes of certain events in in U.S. foreign policy history that did involve uh, sort of our examples of of what you're saying about diplomacy that. The successful instances are those in which we are flexible and have are willing to make some concessions and so on. So, like the uh, famous uh, steely-eyed stare down of of Kennedy in the uh, in the Cuban Missile Crisis. Of course, that involved us taking missiles out of Turkey and promising not to invade Cuba and, and that kind of thing. The Nixon's pivot to China, you know, visit to China again, something that had to be overcome in terms of China's. Uh, broad perception of China was an adversary and an implacable one, um, and and yet uh, it's still the dominant notion that realism and pragmatism has more to do with facing the hard realities of the world and approaching things in a more coercive bargaining context. It's funny how psychologically uh, those things get flipped around in our memory. Yeah, I really don't think that realism is about coercive bargaining. Right. I, I think real, uh, realism is about understanding that situations fluctuate and vary across time. And maybe John Mearsheimer disagrees with me. Right. Um, but, uh, the, the fundamental and here it could, we also could be distinguishing or, or talking at two different levels. On the one hand, there's the overall picture of international relations. What is international relations like? Right. Okay. Well, it's anarchic. They've got states, you're dealing with vital interests that impact the very physical security and our most basic human needs, right? On the other hand, we're talking about what is the the, the practitioner, the um, the realpolitika, right? To use the to the to use the German, the realist, what does he do, he or she do on a daily basis, right? And in that way, it's about it's about not having any preconceived notions about what's possible, but rather always working to see where uh, to manage a situation and see where the openings are, right? Um, and so, therefore, I I would I will at any point have an argument with someone who says that the realist is always someone who. Uh, is always someone who rattles the saber and thinks that the military is the first option. That is just fundamentally not true. Um, a good realist, of which I am not one, because I'm not really a realist, but I write a lot about it, right? But uh, um, a good realist will understand that oftentimes the sword gets you into more trouble than uh, than the pen does, right? And undermines your own security. So uh, just to, just wanted to be certain about that. There are certain instances of vital interest. A realist will say you adjust to the circumstance. What does that mean? It means, well, amongst when it's a truly an existential threat, you have to engage in, in hard coercive bargaining. And yet at the same time, there are very few instances, even when we think about the superpower conflicts between the United States and the Soviet Union, in which we really faced down the barrel of that gun. The Cuban Missile Crisis was one of them. And yet at the same time, what did we do? Like the solution or the way out of that Cuban Missile Crisis was not to continue to coercively bargain, right? The way out of it was to demonstrate flexibility, right? And a recognition that both sides would be worse off if they, uh, and recognition by both sides that both sides would be worse off if they continued down the path that they had started. Brian Rathbun, thank you very much for coming on the show today. 
That was a real pleasure, John. Thanks very much for uh, inviting me. Mm-hmm.